All right, we're we're gonna keep digging into uh, first. <laughs> We're not in 1 Corinthians anymore. We haven't been for a long time. We are, though, going to keep digging into Ephesians together. Um, And so if you've got your Bibles handy, you can go ahead and open up to uh, Ephesians 3. And we're going to work through uh, the first 13 verses in that chapter. As we do that, excuse me, as we do that, um, what we're going to discover today is that Paul has the same problem I have. Maybe you have it too. You ever get started talking about something and then you go off on a little tangent? Sometimes it takes 20 minutes and then you get to the end of the, you know, I mean, when you say, okay, we're going to wrap up and then you start talking for 20 more minutes. I mean, you really thought you were going to wrap up. That's what happens to me. I think David's the same way. We really think we're ready to close. And then it's like, oh, wait, we're going to talk about something else for 20 more minutes. It happens. You know what? It's biblical. It happened to Paul. Paul, right, is, as we read this today, Paul is getting ready to enter into a prayer for the church in Ephesus. Right? And and that's his goal. But as he starts the prayer for the church in Ephesus, what's going to happen is he's going to get sidetracked. um, Except it's not just him being sidetracked. It's the Holy Spirit impressing upon him that he needs to dig deeper into something first. Let's let's track this. Here's what he says. Ephesians 3, 1 is what we'll start today. He says, for this reason, now for this reason is looking back over chapter 2, the things that he's just shared, we'll get there. He says, but for this reason, I... Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then what he means to do is say, I bow my knees before the Father and I pray. And he's going to share that prayer. But what actually happens is when he says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he actually gets then into this parenthetical statement and it takes 12 verses. He's going to go from verse 2 all the way through verse 13 in this parenthetical statement about what it means that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles and why that is and what that means in, in all they've been talking about so far. And here's the deal. Basically what he's saying is, I want to pray for you. And we'll see next week as we get into the second half of chapter 3 that what he's wanting to pray for them is that they would understand the glorious riches that are theirs in God. That they would understand everything God has for them. That's his desire. He wants to fall down on his knees and he wants to pray for the church that they would experience all of this. But but here's what he says. He says, because of all of this, I, Paul, a prisoner for you, right, on, on your behalf, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then instead of getting into the prayer, he says, oh, wait, there's something you've got to really grasp first. This is the Holy Spirit impressing upon him that he needs to dig deep. So when we get to chapter, or we get to verse 14, he's just going to pick up the thought. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Um, and, and he's just digging deep on that reason in these 13 verses. So that's what we're going to focus on today is this parenthetical statement of Paul as he digs deep into why, right, he is so excited to pray for them and what it is that he wants them so desperately to know. 
right? And, and, and here's what he shared already, this groundbreaking revolutionary truth that he shared already just in, in the last chapter, right? In, in verse 15, he says that, that the person in Christ is new. And, and, and so maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're still on the outside looking in. But if that's you this morning, what that means is that the person who has surrendered to Jesus right? And we can use whatever religious language we want to use there, or we could just say surrender to Jesus, right? The person that's been washed in the blood, the person that's been born again, the person that's, that's surrendered their life. I don't, I don't care how you say it, but the idea is that there are people that know that they are sinners. Yes, they're broken and messy, as I sometimes like to remind you. Um, we are, we're broken people. And, and when we recognize that, and we understand that Jesus is who he says he is, he is the one and only son of God, God in flesh, and that he lives perfectly. And, and he sacrifices himself on the cross to pay for my wrong, my broken and messiness, my sin. And that he's buried in the grave, but that he doesn't stay dead, but that he bursts forth from the grave conquering death once and for all. And I say to myself, I know I've got a sin problem. And Jesus Christ is the only one that can take care of it. And I put my trust and faith in him to deal with it. Then I become, Paul tells us, a new creation. The person in Christ is new. And here's the rub. It doesn't matter who you used to be. It doesn't matter how good you used to be, how bad you used to be, how broken you used to be. It doesn't matter what offenses you've committed in the past. It doesn't matter how heinous and despicable they were. In Christ, you are new. You are what we call, in good Bible language, born again. You are saved. And if you are saved, then Paul tells us in chapter 2 that we all belong to one body. Now, that's a little weird because there are people that I don't like out there. They've done some awful things. They are different than I am. They're kind of gross. Right? I mean, I maybe only hated somebody. They maybe really did murder somebody. Right? Or, or I've always lived my life this way. They've always lived their life that way. But Paul says it doesn't really matter because once they're new, they become part of this same body with you. And no distinctions really matter anymore. Rich, poor, slave, free, Greek, Roman, Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female. None of that matters. Those distinctions all disappear. All believers in Christ are new and become part of one body. That includes the Gentiles who once were far away from God, but now when they believe, they're near to God, part of this body, this family. And we're all equally citizens of God's kingdom. And, and we're all being built together into God's temple and dwelling place. And so this is the point that Paul's making. He's saying, this is all part of the great mystery that I'm explaining to you. And because of this great mystery, I am in prison. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. 
And then instead of just going into his prayer, he's going to dig back into this mystery and his authority to share it and what it really means. So let's, let's dig in together. The, the, the reality is this is revolutionary truth for them. The reason he's lingering so long is because they've never heard anything like this before. In fact, it takes everything they thought they knew about religiosity and it turns it upside down. I once preached at, um, oh, this might offend her if she's listening. I doubt she listens. We're going to risk it. My Aunt Helen's church. Um, sorry, Aunt Helen. Um, if you are listening, you guys didn't have to be here for that meeting I had all by myself in my head. Uh, but so, so I, I was filling in the pulpit at their church. Um, just once a month, they were sure this is back when we lived in the quad cities, they, they were in, um, an intermediate time where they let their, their pastor had retired and they hadn't brought a new, uh, pastor in yet. And so they were filling the pulpit in other ways. So for about a year, I went once a month and preached there. Um, and the first time I showed up there, this is kind of what I looked like because this is what I look like. Wow. I have no idea why that got a chuckle. Actually, I'm not going to lie. I looked better than this. Since coming to Vinton, I, man, like, I mean, I was always a big dude, but I, I put on like 80 pounds and I lost all my hair. And this used to kind of be graying, but it is just white now. Um, that's my love for you, is all of this happening. Uh, but whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Like, like, this is what I look like. This is what I wear. I showed up and, and she meets me at the door looking at me like, did you forget you were preaching? It's like, well, this is why I'm here. It's like, well, then go tuck your shirt in and get a jacket and look like you know what you're doing. And I'm like, well, I'm part of the same body you're part of. No matter what I wear, Paul said so. But here, here's the thing, right? We create distinctions. And I did because I love my aunt and went and tucked my shirt in. Um, and then I stood behind this big podium where nobody could see me anyway. So it didn't even matter. Anyway, right? In Christ, though, these distinctions are all gone. But there are some people that put these distinctions out, right? It happens in our culture. It happened in theirs, right? And in their culture, it was you had to be a certain way before you could come worship with us. And Paul is turning all of this on his head and saying, no, 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 none of that matters, right? There's a mystery that I'm explaining to you. That mystery is the gospel. And, and it takes care of all religiosity. It ends all of it. And so this is what he's going to dig into. So let's, let's go through this together. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And I know we already discussed that a little bit. But I want to point out something here. At, at the point where Paul writes the letter to the church in Ephesians, uh, or in Ephesus, he's writing the letter that we know as Ephesians to the people in Ephesus. Um, he knows these people well. Uh, if we read through Acts, we see that he was there. He, he helped appoint elders. They are fond of him. He is fond of them. They love each other, right? Um, but when he writes this, he's actually in prison. Um, and, and by the time he writes this letter, he has been in prison for about five years. Um, two of them were in Caesarea, and then the rest have been in Rome itself under house arrest with a Roman soldier as his guard 24 hours a day. Why? 
Well, he's in prison for five years under Roman guard 24 hours a day because he preached the mystery of God, because he shared the gospel. Now, who put him in jail? wasn't Rome. It was actually the Jews. There's going to be a point in time where as we read through the the, uh, New Testament or we get into some historical things that we see that Rome turns against Judaism and Christianity. Rome eventually will destroy Jerusalem and tear the temple to the ground, and they will eventually persecute Christians, um, either getting them to recant their faith or throwing them in um, pits with lions. That will happen, but it hasn't happened yet as Paul writes this letter. The reason Paul is in prison is because Jews hate him. Jews hate him because they believe he is a traitor and a blasphemer. They believe that Paul is actively leading people astray. They believe that Paul has um, become a traitor to them by saying that Jesus is alive and real. So here's what happens, right? Paul is is sharing the gospel that says, look, you don't have to be a Jew to be saved by God. You don't have to be a Jew to be close to God. You don't have to be a Jew to be part of the body of God, to be part of the, the temple that he's building together. You don't have to be Jewish for that. And the Jewish people are incensed. In fact, everywhere Paul goes, he's persecuted by Jews. One city he goes to, and he's preaching the gospel, and, and they get so mad at him that they stir up the crowd against him. They, they take him, they literally drag him outside of town. They pick up big rocks, and they stone him to the point where they think he's dead. So what does Paul do? He gets up, shook it off, and that guy walks right back into the city. Right? They, he's got confidence in God, but they are persecuting him. And eventually when he gets to Jerusalem, um, he goes from church to church. We read about this in Corinthians. We read about the Macedonian church. There's, there's a famine and a drought and some issues in Jerusalem that are causing financial hardships. So Paul goes to these other congregations and he takes up an offering, a collection. And he travels to the church in Jerusalem to present this offering to the, to the Christians as a way of relieving some of their suffering. While he's there, um, some of the Jews create a false witness against him and they start accusing him of crimes and they're about to kill him when uh, the Roman soldiers come in and arrest him instead. So Paul has to plead his case. First, he, he pleads his case to a guy named Felix. Felix is like, remember Pilate for Jesus? was the governor of Rome that was over that area. Um, Well, there's a guy named Felix over um, Jerusalem. He's Roman, and he's over Jerusalem at that time. And so Paul pleads his case to Felix. Then Felix is replaced by a guy named Festus a little while later, and Paul pleads his case to Festus. Later, when Festus is visited by King Agrippa, right, who would have been the equivalent to Herod at the time of Jesus, King Agrippa, Paul pleads his case Um, to Agrippa, right? And and none of them find any fault in him. 
In fact, they're about to release him, but Paul finds out that there's a plot. As soon as he's released, the plot is to kill him. So instead, he uses his Roman citizenship to say, no, 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 I don't want to be released. I appeal to Caesar. And because he appeals to Caesar and because he's a Roman citizen, they take him and they send him to Rome where he is under house arrest um, for three years now. So in all of this, Paul says, I, because I dared preach to the Gentiles, because I dared say that the gospel was for the Gentiles, I am in prison. I am a prisoner for your sake. But what's interesting is he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say that he's a prisoner of the Jews. He doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And there's something really critical for us. The reason we're lingering so long on verse 1 is because we have to understand this perspective that Paul has. Paul has a divine perspective. And the divine perspective helps him see everything that's happening to him in the proper light. See, if Paul had regular perspective, Paul would sit back and say, this is not worth it. I've been shipwrecked. I've been whipped multiple times. I've been beaten. I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been threatened. I've had to escape in the middle of the night. All of this is bad. It's not working. It's not worth it. I quit. Because when it gets hard, he would just walk away. But Paul has this divine perspective that understands, you know what, right? God is still in control even though it's hard. Think about it like glasses. When you wear corrective glasses, right, the the lenses of the glasses help you see the world in focus. They help you see it clearly, right? Paul's wearing his divine perspective glasses, So when he's looking at a broken world and he's looking at all the hardship and he's looking at all the things that are happening to him, he's looking through this lens that says, I know God is sovereign. I know God is good. I know that God loves me. I know that God is powerful, right? I know that God is faithful and I know that God is in control of all things. And so even though these things are happening, I still know that God's got this. And so when Paul is in jail, he's not whining about his circumstances. He's not complaining about how hard it is. He's not getting ready to walk away. But instead he's looking at it going, I'm in prison as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Because that is the person that I'm following. That is the person that's in control. That is the person that's in charge. He has this perspective. Listen, if you do not have a divine perspective, when things happen that you don't like, when hardship comes... When trouble presses in, if you do not have a divine perspective, it will either weaken your faith or it will cause you to abandon your faith, right? Because you'll convince yourself, and Satan will help you along the way, you'll convince yourself, what possible good is God if I'm going to be stuck here anyway? If I'm going to be stuck here anyway, what good is God But Paul has a perspective that says, I'm stuck here and God is still good and in control and right. In fact, Paul 
has this perspective, and it leads him into circumstances where he knows he's in trouble. Here's what Paul says to the elders of Ephesus. Go back into Acts 20. He, he is on his way with these offerings to Jerusalem, and, and he wants to visit with these elders from Ephesus. He loves them. They love him, but he doesn't have time to see them, so he sends for them. They come meet him on the way, and he says to them, I'm never going to see your face on this earth again. Right? And they cry and they weep together. And here's what he said. He said, I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is telling me to go to Jerusalem. But he says, the same Holy Spirit is telling me city after city that when I get to Jerusalem, jail and suffering lie ahead for me. But my life is worth nothing. Unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Paul says, the Holy Spirit is telling me that when I get to Jerusalem, I am going to suffer and be imprisoned. But guess what? Because of my divine perspective, I'm going to Jerusalem. And when I have suffering and when I'm imprisoned, I'm not going to throw a fit and say, what good is God? I'm going to say, well, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What could I do besides tackle the work that he gave me? That's why Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf. That's a lot to get into for just one verse of scripture, but we have to understand this perspective and this mindset. And then he continues recapping some things he's already shared, right? He says, so assuming that you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've already written to you briefly, the mystery is the gospel, the gospel that's good for Gentiles. This was a, a, a thing that was given to him by the grace of God, this message. And I love the way he says this. He says, um, assuming that you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, he's basically saying, like, I, I'm imagining you've heard about this already. I've already written about it. I stopped in Ephesus. I preached it to you. I'm assuming you already know this. But he says, I'm a steward of this. Something really important to understand there. Paul's like, I didn't make this up. It's not like Paul one day decided, you know what would be awesome? It would be awesome if the gospel was for Gentiles and not just Jews. Paul didn't walk into a town and say, you know what, I think today I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles and not the Jewish people. You know, he's like, I'm a steward of the gospel, this mystery, this gospel. It was given to me by God. All I can do is pass it on. We got to be really careful, right? Like, we aren't making up these messages. When, when Pastor David or myself, when we preach to you, when you hear other, other uh, preachers or pastors or ministers or whatever, when, when you hear them share truth from Scripture, it's not their truth, right? When you share the gospel with your friends, it's not your truth that you're sharing, Right? We live in a culture where there is all kinds of truth, right? Your truth, my truth, everybody's got truth. But in this instance, what, what, what's happening is Paul is basically saying, no, 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 it's not your truth, my truth. There's just truth and it's just from God and I'm a steward of it. All I can do is give you what he gave me. I'm a steward of God's grace that was given to me for you. Because this mystery, this gospel that's for the Gentiles, that's for everyone was revealed to me and all I can do is share it with you. And he says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into this mystery. What he means by that is when you're reading this that I'm giving you, 
it's time for you to start to understand it. Do you know why? Because ignorance will not be an excuse. There's a point in time where just because you don't know something doesn't mean you're off the hook. As parents, we get that, right? Well, I didn't know what would happen when I shook up the two-liter bottle of Coke and opened it on the, the living room carpet. Like at some point in time, not knowing is not an excuse. Paul says, I, I need you. I'm writing this to you. I'm telling you this so that you can perceive the insight into this mystery. You can't say, I kept Gentiles away forever and ever and ever because I thought I was doing right. No, you, you don't get to say that anymore. Because I'm telling you the mystery, I'm telling you the gospel, and I need you to understand and have insight into this. Like, not knowing is a poor excuse. It's time for us to understand. How many times do you read the scriptures, right? And you read something and you're like, okay, well, I read it, but you don't understand. There's a point where Paul's saying it's time to dig past that. I need you not just to read it. I need you to perceive it, to understand the insight. It's part of what we're doing here. He says in that insight that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles. It's for all of us, right? He said that insight's new. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The thing that we have to grasp here is that what Paul's saying is this gospel, it really was a mystery, right? Because until God is revealing it to us to tell you, until I became a steward of it and am sharing it with you, and the other apostles and prophets are stewards of it and sharing it with you, until that happened, we didn't know. And that was okay, but now we do, and we need to understand it, and we need to be able to perceive it, and we need to be able to act accordingly, right? The Old Testament authors, the Old Testament saints, they didn't know what God's plan was for the church. They couldn't have fathomed this. They didn't have any idea. In fact, there's a reality here. here here's, here's the reality. Old Testament teachings that relate to this mystery, to the gospel and the birth of the church, they can only be understood clearly in light of New Testament revelation. We know the meaning of a lot of Old Testament passages only because they're explained by the New Testament apostles, prophets, and authors. That's the reality. I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples. First one, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. God tells this to Abraham when he calls him into what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. Right? He, and he says, I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you, but he does it by making them a special nation, Israel. So we know how God blesses Israel. We see that all through the Old Testament. And we know that God's intention is to bless all people through him, but we don't know what exactly that looks like until Paul explains it to us. When this mystery is revealed to him, he says, what's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight, because of their faith. God pro 
proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. And so what's happening is we're starting to understand the Old Testament prophecy and all of these things through the New Testament revelation. All of that by the Holy Spirit. Right? What does it mean that God's going to bless all the peoples of the earth? Well, we don't really know. We just know he said it and we know it's going to happen. Then we get to Jesus in the church and we say, ah, oh, now we get it. Here's what it means. It means that through Abraham and his offspring and the nation of Israel and the old law, God would bring the Messiah who would suffer and die and rise again from the dead so that everyone could experience this freedom that only Israel used to have. And now in Christ, everyone can be free. So now we can understand it fully. This is how it works. The same thing we read in Isaiah. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Right? And then Paul says in Acts, he says, Paul and Barnabas um, speaking at the synagogue when the people rejected him, he said, you know what? It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you, the Jews. Right? But since you've rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to go offer it to the Gentiles. Because this is what the Lord commanded when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So we have... New Testament authors, when Paul says, man, they didn't understand this until God revealed it through his spirit to the prophets and the apostles who are now sharing it with you. And here's the reality. This is a dangerous game to play. This God told me, so I'm telling you. In fact, by and large, we don't listen to people that say, God told me, so I'm telling you. God told me a secret, and I'm going to tell everybody else what the secret is, and you better do it because God said so. I said, well, where's my authority for that? Well, my authority for that is I'm trusting that guy that says he heard from God. By and large, we, we ignore that kind of teaching. Right? We should ignore that kind of teaching. When somebody tells you, hey, I have secret knowledge that only I have, but it impacts all of your eternity, we're a little bit leery, right? We're a little bit careful about believing that. In fact, we have whole congregations, whole congregations that have been led astray, Sometimes even whole denominations that have been led astray because some people said, no, 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 God told me a new way to understand this. And they start teaching this new way to understand it. But it's not rooted in the Bible. It's not rooted in Scripture. Right? But Paul says, God is revealing things not just to him, but to the apostles and the prophets. And when he's revealing it, it jives with Scripture. We're seeing how it fits together. Here's, here's how, uh, how, how Peter says this works. Above all, you must realize no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Right? So if somebody tells you, God, you know, I have a new way of seeing this. I have a new way of understanding. Peter would say, that's no, that's not how it works. That guy's false. Don't listen to him. Because... No prophecy in Scripture ever came from my own understanding or my own initiative. Right? But the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke as if from God. 
That's how this works. Listen to me. There's a couple of things there to know. One is you've got to know your Bible. You've got to know your Bible for two reasons, right? One is because that's the way that you grow and grow in your relationship with God. But two is because it helps you know if I start to be weird. Listen, I love Jesus and I love his word. And Pastor David loves Jesus and he loves his word. And I can speak for your elders. They love Jesus and they love the word. And we are trying to teach it and preach it and help you discern it in a way that is appropriate. And that is our goal. And we've committed to that with you. It doesn't mean we won't get stupid. I don't believe we will. But I may wake up one day and be dumb. Or than I already am. And in that, I might start to lead you somewhere that is not appropriate from my own understanding or my own human initiative. If and when that happens, you got to know your word. You got to know the Bible. You got to know what God says so that you can say, whoa, time out. That's no good. That's too far. That's not what God says. All right, back to it. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what he's saying here. This this whole thing says this, right? Um, God gave me a mystery. I proclaimed it. I'm in jail for you because I've been proclaiming this mystery. Here's what the mystery is. The mystery is, and it's new, right? It wasn't for generations before, but now in the church age, since Christ, God is giving it to the prophets and the apostles to proclaim. And the mystery is this. Anybody who accepts Jesus Christ as their savior is now in. Doesn't matter what their religion was. It doesn't matter what they practiced. It doesn't matter what mistakes they made. None of it matters if they accept Jesus Christ as their savior. If they accept his sacrifice on their behalf, if they surrender to him and follow him, they're in. They are now heirs. That's a legal thing, right? They are now eligible for the inheritance. In that, they are familially connected. They are part of the body. And that's partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And and Paul says, it's that gospel that I was made a minister of according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. He's like, I was made a minister of that. You know what minister is? Minister is a really fancy word. You guys, we think minister is like somebody really important. The minister is the guy that talks and everybody listens. If he goes 20 minutes late, Most people don't get up and walk out. They may stop listening, but they don't get up and walk out. We think the minister is really, no, minister, that word, it's a fancy word that just means servant. Similar to what he said earlier with steward, the minister is just a servant. So it's this gospel, right? This mystery, this gospel that saves everybody. God made me a minister of that. It was given to me by the working of his power. Right? That message was given to me. And and Paul says, as a minister, as a servant, what am I supposed to do besides preach the gospel? One of the ways that you judge pastors, preachers, elders, is how well they preach the gospel. How clearly and how frequently they preach the gospel. Paul says, "I'm I'm a servant of God. He gave me this message, this mystery, this gospel to interpret. So all I can do is interpret it by his power. That's it. It's all I can do. 
And he says, that that privilege was given to me, though I'm the very least of the saints. The grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says he reminds us that he's the least qualified for this. He's the least qualified because he used to hate Christians. He used to hate Gentiles. He used to persecute them. He used to murder them as blasphemers, right? He used to keep them away from the church or, or, or from, from the temple, from, from God the best he could. But when Jesus got a hold of him, everything radically changed. God shared this mystery with him along with the other prophets and apostles. And now they're on a mission to share it. He says, that's all I can do. God, I, I don't deserve this role to be this minister, but God blessed me and gave me the grace to do this, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And there are unsearchable riches of Christ. I hate the prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel because it wrongly leads you to believe that living a right life with God will give you all of these temporary earthly blessings. That's not the New Testament. But there's the prosperity gospel, when rightly understood, is absolutely true. When rightly understood, the prosperity gospel tells us that being right with God and following God will give me blessings upon blessings. They just won't be temporary. They won't be health, wealth, and good relationships. Right? But they'll be eternal blessings. Paul says, it's my job to preach to you these unsearchable riches all of the blessings that are there for you when you follow Christ and to bring to light for everyone what was the plan of the mystery hidden in the ages for God who created all things. It's just my job to tell you these things. Now this is where it gets a little weird and we'll wrap this up. Paul says, one of the reasons I need to share these things with you, one of the reasons this is so important is so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is where it gets a little off, right? We're like, I'm tracking so far, but this is where it gets weird. Basically, Paul's telling us two things. He's like, one, this glorious riches that are in Christ, you know what one of the main riches that are in Christ is? It's the church. He's like, it's my job. God's given me this grace to share with you these wonderful riches, these these wonderful riches that are in Christ, right? And, And what is it? Well, then the next thing he says, the church, through the church, Some of you, as Christians, you're like, I I get why I need Christ. Why do I need the church? People ask me that all the time, right? Usually it's because they don't necessarily want to be actively involved in a church. I know I need Jesus. Why do I need the church? And if, if, listen, if the message, if the gospel, if the mystery was only about your salvation, then you wouldn't need the church, Think about all the preaching you can get online. I said last week, like, you, you don't have to listen to me. You could listen to a good preacher every week if you wanted to, right? You could get online and you could listen to somebody great. And then Philip said, amen. <laughs> and it stung just a little, but I got over it. Okay, but you, you could, and you could read any number of books on Christian living. You don't need me or small groups to to tell you, right? We could access all of that on our own. But one of the glorious things, the riches that we have in Christ is, is not just that he's taking us and he's saving us from hell. It's that he's building us into this body for his glory. And then we get to this part where he says, oh, and by the way, Part of the reason that the church exists is to, is to express God's wisdom to the angels. 
The angels didn't know the church was going to be a thing, right? They didn't know how this was. God didn't share this plan with them. And so as it unfolds and it happens that all of these different people are brought into one body to worship God together, what happens is that that brings in the heavenly realms, that brings glory to God. We have to understand that as a church, um, part of the reason we exist is to save souls. But that's not the only reason we exist. We exist to share the gospel with people that need to know the gospel. That is an important and marvelous work. But the supreme purpose of the church is to bring glory to God by worshiping him together, by being unified, by growing together as a local church and then also as um, a church that is universal. We are to bring glory to God in that way. And in that way, his wisdom is seen by the angels and they can offer him even greater praise. And we wrap this up and Paul says, all of this is realized in Christ Jesus in, in whom now we have boldness and can access with confidence through our faith in him, this throne. We can access God through confidence and boldness in Jesus. And so Paul ends. He ends this parenthetical statement with this. He started it with, I, Paul, therefore, based on all of this, I, the prisoner for you of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. And then we have this whole parenthetical statement about why he's in jail. This, this, this manifold wisdom of God made known in this mystery that the church and salvation is for the Gentiles. He ends it with saying, so, so listen, don't feel bad for me. It's almost like he feels guilty. He starts by saying, so, so, so therefore, I, Paul, who, by the way, I'm in jail for your benefit— Right? And then he's like, well, no, really I'm in jail for Christ Jesus because he said and did all of these things through me and I'm a steward and I have to. So he ends with, so don't, I'm not asking you to feel guilty for me. It's like, I'm not asking you to lose heart over what I'm suffering. It's for your glory. I just need you to know it. And then next week he'll get into the prayer. But as we end this, right, I want to just point something out to you and I want to ask you to step into it. I just want to point out the paradox of where Paul's at. And I want to encourage you in this thing about divine, godly, Christian perspective. Paul is in prison, going on five years now, and eventually he's going to lose his life and he knows it. He's in prison. And at the same time, he's seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying as he's in prison is... How awesome is it that God gave me this grace that I got to share? He's not whining. He's not complaining. He's looking at the positive. He's saying, this is fantastic that God, even though I was not worth this, he counted me worthy of being a part of this so that we could do all of this, so that I could share this truth, so that you could not just know it, but that you could learn it and discern it and understand it and that you could walk in it and that we as a church could glorify God together in the heavenlies. Paul's living in this tension of who he is in Christ and the difficulty he's dealing with here on earth. And I want to ask you what it looks like for you to walk in that tension. Because just because God is in control and we are following him does not mean things are always going to go well. In fact, it often means that we are going to experience hardships in this life. And we need to be able to walk in those.
So I'm going to pray for us. And I'll look forward to getting into Paul's prayer with you next week, but I'm going to pray for us. Pastor David's going to come up and close us out. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word and this truth. God, thank you that the gospel, this mystery, um, is not still hidden, but that it's been revealed to your apostles and prophets. And, and, and because it's in your word now, it's, it, it's available to all of us, God, that we can live in that tension of a world that's broken, but knowing that there is a God who saves and who moves us forward in the gospel. God, help us, help us to grow and live and serve according to your word, uh, even when it's difficult. Uh, God, thank you for the truth that you love us and care for us. Amen. Amen. As we uh, prepare to leave, I just want to give us a blessing and uh, a commission for the week. As we end, a lot of times it's like, what's the next steps? So Pastor Matt talking about this divine perspective. I just want to give you the same blessing and pray uh, for us, the same thing that Paul did for the church in Ephesus. And this is back in chapter one, but this is what Paul says. He's like, I keep asking, and this is the prayer for us. May the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our glorious Father, give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. May our eyes be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and his incomparably great power given to those who believe. Church, as we leave today, the commission to us is, are you going to seek after this? This is what Paul says is available to us. If we want this divine perspective, then let's seek after the things that God wants to give us. The ability to know him. The ability to know who we are as heirs. And the power that he has bestowed upon us as Christians. That is your commission this week as we go. Lord God, use your church as we leave this place. In your precious name, amen. Go in peace.